Well, Rusana, um, I know you were in Russia. Uh, you're no longer in Russia, but you were in Russia when the war started. So uh, I don't know. I'd like to get your impression of, of being there when this you know, thing happened that I think surprised many of us. I mean, I was certainly one. I didn't think Putin was going to actually go to war, but he has. And um, yeah, so why don't you give us a sense of your impressions? Okay. Uh, yeah, it kind of like took everyone by surprise, like a tsunami that no one expected. Uh, you know, I live in, uh, I lived in Vladivostok, which is the opposite side of the country. So I didn't feel uh, particularly concerned for like myself, for my physical health or anything like that. And I'm not the kind of person who follows the news very closely, like every day. So um, I was kind of just like doing my thing, minding my own business. And then I started getting all these messages from my friends and they were like, are you like, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the war started and it just kind of, I don't know, there was this, there's this sense of panic among Russian people because everything is unfolding so quickly and some things that you thought would never be possible, the next day they happen and you realize that the boundaries of the normal are being changed by the hour. My parents live right next to the border. They live 50 miles from the Ukrainian border, so... I'm really concerned for their well-being and, I mean, they're stubborn. They don't want to relocate. They don't want to move. So uh, it's it's crazy. And I think, at least among my friends, there is this growing sense of panic and doom because we all understand that the consequences and the price of this war uh, will be borne on the shoulders of regular Russian people. I'm not you know, will bear the consequences, financial, I mean, political, educational, everything. That, I mean, that's my impression. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to speak to the Ukrainian side. I mean, you know, bombs are falling on those people's heads. It's, but it it is a, it is a conflict where, you know, regular, I, I described it as this, um, I, I feel like, and granted from my privileged position in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but nonetheless, I feel like, you know, we're all hostages to this entire situation. And, you know, I, I mean, to me, it's been, it's been really emotionally difficult. Mostly, I, you know, when I think about it, it's because, I mean, honestly, like I grew up, when I was growing up, I was terrified of nuclear war. And now it's like all that shit has come back. I mean, the last time this, I had these feelings, I think was after 9-11. And, but, you know, I see from the news what's going on in Russia, the, the lines of people scrambling, uh, the sense of doom. Um, I don't, I don't know. Did you have, did you get a chance to, like, do you have a sense about, you know, even what your parents or your parents circles are are thinking did you talk to them do you i don't know if you're willing to even mention that but it, it it is true that russia is polarized right so there are people who definitely um 
think that this is a horrible, absolutely horrible and terrifying and unnecessary war campaign that no one wants it and in the 21st century. I mean, I mean it doesn't matter when. I mean like why would anyone want to bomb other people? It's just like none of this makes sense. I mean, I just I, I'm at loss for words. And I feel like a lot of my friends in academia and like otherwise share that feeling and that's where the sense of doom is coming from because like no one understands like you can't even fathom like why this is happening but there's definitely other people including perhaps people that I've came a, a, I've come across in the far east who think that this is a necessary uh that this is a terrible but necessary measure in order to protect Russia's uh, military security. And I, I feel like there's definitely a lot of people like that. And um, I don't know if there's... It's like, you know, in, in the US, like, it's so polarized. I don't know if there is space for dialogue. Although some of my friends who've been protesting and who've, you know... Uh, petitioned and everything they they do urge to talk to the other side to your parents to your uncles and uh, neighbors and and try to kind of uh, not reason really but perhaps build that bridge of dialogue of uh, kind of showing the other side of things that you know people who perhaps like mostly watch state television are not necessarily introduced to, you know? Well, this is, I, I think this is really, and, and I apologize for any listeners out there who are, you know, would like some kind of analysis or, you know, a discussion about the situation in Ukraine itself. Um, I'm not prepared to give that. Um, I'm, I'm not a Ukrainian expert. So I don't, I also don't feel that I am in a place to be able to speak for, you know, that experience. Um, but I, I do think it's, I, at the same time, I do think it's important to get a sense of what the mood is in Russia as well. And one of my um, concerns over the last week or so is that um, Russia is being, Russia is being forgotten. Um what's happening on the ground there is is not getting as much attention at least unless i'm wrong um but i think it deserves as much attention because russian like as you said that the the costs of this conflict always wars the pe regular people pay for war in one way or another and this is this is no different i mean uh, there, there's there's obviously no question that the hardships and the horror that the Ukrainian people have to go through goes in no comparison to the difficulties that the Russians are experiencing or might experience in the future. But nonetheless, uh, these are also very real and serious consequences like growing censorship, repressions, uh, incarceration of activists, I mean, financial hardships, uh, inability to leave abroad at all. Like I personally know several people who are desperately trying to get out of the country 
because they think that the borders are going to close soon and we're just going to be stuck there, like in North Korea, not being able to go, especially men who will, who might end up on the front, even if they don't want to. Well, I, I will recommend for people, I mean, there's so much information out there, um, but I do recommend uh, Tony Wood, who is a very smart guy when it comes to Russia, uh, gave an interview on the, the Dig podcast this week that I recommend people listen to. Tony Tony is uh, has a really sharp analysis of things. He's been on this show before. I've known Tony for, God, uh, 15 years or so. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's a really sharp guy. And I, I recommend, I recommend that interview if you want, um, some kind of, you know, attempt to try to understand, uh, what is happening and, and what's the, you know, what could the Kremlin be thinking or what could this one guy Putin be thinking, which everyone seems to be, I don't know, at a loss, including myself. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined this week by Rusana Novikova. Uh, as you know, as a listener, um, it has, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who are very generous and give monthly contributions to help us go keep going, to give Rusana and Margaret some a bit of money so to you know in exchange for what they do on this podcast, which is ter- tremendously helpful for me. So if you'd like to become a patron, uh, please go to the podcast Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner of the website and join the table of ranks. Okay, you know, Rusana, we have this really fascinating interview with Jeffrey Roberts about Stalin and his books. So why don't, why don't you introduce uh, Jeffrey for us? Jeffrey Roberts is Professor Emeritus of History at University College Cork. He is a renowned specialist in Russian and Soviet foreign and military policy and an expert on Stalin and the Second World War. He's the author of several books. His latest is Stalin's Library, a dictator in his books, published by Yale University Press. Here's Jeffrey Roberts. So, Jeffrey, it, it's really nice to, to talk to you. I, I've read a couple of your books. And, and when I saw this new book of yours, Stalin's Library, A Dictator and His Books, uh, come out, I was actually quite excited because, you know, more and more biographical work that's being done on Stalin in the last decade or so is really pointing out how much of an autodidact he was. And so I was curious, you know, what inspired you to write this book about his relationship with reading in his library? Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for the invitation to do this uh, interview. I was excited as, as you were when the book comes out. <laughs> I'm still still excited about it because it's a project I've been working on for you know a, a decade or, or so. Uh, so it's a great relief, great joy actually that the book is uh, finally out there. What, what drew me to the project 
in the first place was the source, Stein's personal book collection, and in particular, several hundred uh, texts which he, he had marked in some way. As far as Stein's concerned, it's a unique source. Since the collapse of the USSR, collapse of communism, the open up of the Russian archives, we've, we've had access to an enormous amount of material about Stalin, about what's going on in private with Stalin, about confidential discussions he's having, the decisions he's making, the interactions he's having with various people, how he's responding to particular documents that's placed before him. So a huge amount of information. But all of that type of information I just referred to is what you might call performative. It's all Stalin performing for a particular audience, even though it might only be his own officials or the members of the Politburo. The thing about the, the library books as a source is that Stein's not performing for anyone except himself. It's, you know, when Stalin's reading his library books and quite often, you know, marking them in some way, you know, it's Stalin that is most uh, um, spontaneous. It's Stalin that is most unreflective in a way, in, in unself-consciousness, unself, unself thinking aloud. So, so it is really the most intimate source we have about Stalin. And, and so, you know, and, and it's uh, the way I like to think about the, the intimacy... It, this source provides us with. On the one hand, it's a window into his mind, but it's also a window looking out of his mind. We're not, we don't get to peer inside his head. We also get, as I put it in the book, is a bit of a, 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 the wrong metaphor in a way, since uh, Stalin uh, didn't actually wear glasses, is that we get to wear Stalin's spectacles and we get to see, to a certain extent anyway, how he viewed the world. So, 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 so it's the source. It wasn't just the source because... Of course, this source has been around uh, for quite a while since the, it's been available since the mid 1990s. So it wasn't a new source when I became interested in it. What drew me to it was the fact that this source was going to become available, easily available to me, because the source was going to be digitized. The 400 books and texts in his personal life that he, he, he marked were actually going to be digitized as part of the, the Stalin Digital Art Archive by Yoan of Express. So what that meant was I would be able to do, you know, do the research from home. <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the easier, the, the digitization source was crucial. Now, as it turned out, what happened was that the digital, the Stalin's digital archive project, the Yale project actually stalled at a certain point. And it stalled when only one third of the library, the library books, once he marks have been so, so of the 400 items, maybe I think it's about 140 were digitalized, but the other 250, 260 hadn't been digitalized. So I, I, I had to go to Moscow to look at those items. Now, as it turns out, that was fine. I was always going to go to Moscow and look at the, the, the real thing anyway. But actually, there's a lot to be said for examining the material objects themselves. You, you learn things from that, which you don't get from, from digitalization. So though, although it was like enormously like inconvenient and time-consuming to go to the archive in Moscow and examine the books in, uh, in, in situ, it was actually very uh, beneficial. It, the library itself, you know, it, it contains about 25,000 books and periodicals and pamphlets. You know, give us a sense of what this library is. Like, what types of books are in it? What is its history? Because, you know, it was, I, from my understanding from reading you, it, it was scattered to some extent. It was in multiple locations. So to talk about the library itself and, and its contents. So there was, there, was the, there was this unique source. It was available. And I also had a, a certain confidence that I would be able to make good use of this source. And the reason 
for that confidence was because in the 1970s and 1980s, I had a personal library that was very similar to Stalin's personal library. Not the same library, same books, but the same types of books. You know, I was a Marxist. All the kind of stuff that, um, that Stalin was interested in, <laughs> I was interested at one time. And then the final reason that drew me to the project, and then I'll come back to the question about the history of the library, was that um, I wanted to write a wide-ranging study of Stalin, but I didn't want to write a biography. That seemed to me to be too much of a mountain for me to climb, given the enormous amount of sources that had, had become available you know, from the 1990s onwards. Why write a wide-ranging book about Stalin as opposed to particular studies, you know, like the one I did about his war leadership, for example, was I, there were some unanswered questions I had about Stalin. And the biggest one was Stalin and the terror. How do we explain Stalin and the terror? How do we explain why he did it and how he was able to do it as a personality, as a character? And I'd written about the terror before, published about it. I, I, I had have a position on the terror, <laughs> but I wasn't convinced by my own position. You know, I wasn't. There was a gap in my understanding, and I thought by doing this this particular book would would help me close that gap. So, get back to your question about the history of um, the library. I mean, the short answer your, your question: well, What kind of library was it? Well, it, it was a Marxist library. It was a Soviet library. I mean, Stalin was a Marxist. For Stalin, Marxism was the key to everything. To key to key to all understanding about history, about social development, about people, not just about the human world, but about the natural world. So naturally, you know, he, like I was in the 70s and 80s, he's devouring books about, by and about Marxism. So you know, the, the bulk of the library is Marxist, and virtually all of it is Soviet in the sense that it consists of books published in the Soviet Union during the Stalin era, or, Nearly all in Russian, by the way, or a few Georgian books, but, but mostly we're talking about Russian books. But it's not just there. I mean, there, it's, not, it's not just your Marxist stuff. There's non-Marxist stuff, quite a lot of it there as well. And actually, that's what kind of interested me. I, was interested, I wasn't so interested in exploring in Stalin's Marxism as through the prism of his library, because some, that had been done already. Eric Van Rie had done that in his book about Stalin's political fall. I was actually more interested in the non-Marx, Stalin's non-Marxist reading and what he made of that and what, it, what, he, what, he, what he told us. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on your comment about um, Stalin and the terror and how you were intrigued by, you know, the, this, um, how you were intrigued by this relationship, I'm guessing. Um, and I wonder how your perception of Stalin as a political figure, uh, as a dictator, as a person, change um, as a result of your research after you've studied all those books and marginalia, etc. Well, it, it, changed, it changed in quite a, a fundamental way, or at least it feels fundamental to me. So my explanation for the terror is, is a, and it's not just, it's not a unique explanation, lots of people made this argument, is that the terror was politically and ideologically driven. It was driven by Stalin's beliefs and perceptions about multiple threats to the Soviet state in the 1930s and his belief that the way to 
deal with that threat uh, was but was through uh, policies of massive repression. The dimension that, um, that studying the library added to my understanding of Stalin and, and the terror was it opened my eyes to the emotional content of Stalin's ideology and Stalin's politics. In the book, I give this slight definition of an intellectual. An intellectual is someone for whom ideas are emotionally important. Yeah, And I hadn't realised how emotionally important Stalin's ideas were to him until I did this research, until I saw it in the markings he made in his books in his library. So Stalin, this is my shift, Stalin is a feeling intellectual, right? And it's because he's a feeling intellectual, he's able to do all these terrible, terrible things because he, he, he invests a huge amount of emotional force into the ideas which frame his political action. And it's the emotional force, I think, that you know enables him as a person to be able to do this, to be able to, you know, to, you know, to see it through. Now, also as an intellectual, Stalin, uh, you know, like all intellectuals, like we all can, <laughs> we can rationalise. Yes, we can uh, turn stuff into abstractions. You know, after the Civil War, um, Stalin didn't actually witness any of this violence he was responsible for. It, it, it's it's all, all 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 in his head. So it's those two things. You know, the, the capacities of an intellectual to rationalise turn it into the abstract, you know, to treat what's going on as, an, as a, an idea, a set of ideas, and the emotional force underpinning those ideas. So that, so that, was, my, that was my breakthrough uh, in Rice's book. If I can break in here, you know, it reminds it. This is one of the things I, I, I like about some of the new scholarship on Stalin, and that is emphasizing how seriously he took ideas. Because for a long time, we were painted a picture of a very cynical Stalin. And it doesn't, I don't mean to say that he doesn't manipulate ideas for his own purposes. I mean, everyone does that. But it reminds me, what you were saying reminds me of a, um, a something Lars Lee wrote in the introduction to his, uh, the Kaganovich Stalin letters. And that is, we could have, you know, we could actually have done better if Stalin was a bit more cynical. <laughs> because he was a true believer, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. 100%. Yeah, Stalin was an idealist. He was a, a utopian. Uh, uh, one thing that's absolutely certain from the evidence presented by the library is the authenticity of his his, his Marxism. I mean, in the book, I say that um, you know, Stalin was a fanatic, yeah, an ideological fanatic, uh, but without a secret doubt. He had no doubt whatsoever. There's, there is not a single hint in all his markings, all his books, yes, uh, that, that, that cast any doubt or that in his, on his belief in Marxism. Nothing whatsoever. And in fact, my favourite um, annotation of Stalin's is something he wrote in a kind of like military journal. And this is in 1945, 1946. And he's reading an article about the conduct of strategic military operations. And the author of this article makes the point, well, you know, uh, how you ex the, the determination with, with which you exercise leadership during strategic operations and on the battlefield itself is crucial to determining their outcome and success. And, and, and Stalin has written in the margin of that, not that, no, the most important thing is knowledge of Marxism. The most important thing is, and that's, and that's his belief from the very beginning uh, to, to, uh, to, to the end. Yeah, so I agree with the point you just made there. 
Um, let, let's turn again back to this, the history of, of the library and, and it's what happened to it and w what's in it and his fate. Yeah. Okay. Look, look, look. Stalin was a Bolshevik intellectual and all Bolshevik intellectuals valorized books, valorized uh, written texts uh, because they were committed to the view that, 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 that it was through ideas that uh, containing books, among other things, that people's consciousness could be transformed. And indeed, it's through ideas uh, that human nature itself could be transformed. So the Bolsheviks were committed from the get-go, not just to you know overthrowing capitalism and building a new type of society, socially and economically. They were also committed to uh, you know what Michael David Fox called a, a revolution of the mind. Yeah, and reading was. Uh, one of the um, agencies of that revolution, and they didn't exempt themselves from this revolution. They wanted to revolutionise their own minds as well as everyone else's, and they were going to do it by reading. So naturally, as intellectuals, as, as believers in the power of ideas, the transformational power of ideas, they, they, they did a lot of reading. They collected a lot of books. All the Bolshevik leaders were big, had big personal book collections, yeah? Lenin, for example, when he died, he, he, he had 9,000 books uh, in, in his collection. So we're talking post-Civil War, when it becomes possible for Stalin and all the other leaders to actually seriously start to, to you know, to, to build up uh, his book book collection. Uh, they're all buying, they're all acquiring books. Uh, they're all building up their personal uh, book collection. So Stalin is not unique uh, in that respect. Okay, but what happens in, in, in Stalin's case? Um is that by the, the mid-1920s, he, he has about, I think, probably about a couple of thousand books he's collected, yeah? But at that point, what he does is he engages the ser services of a woman called um, uh, Shushanika Manucharans. Uh, Shusha uh, is a, is a, was a diminutive. Uh, um, and Shusha had been Lenin's librarian, Lenin's personal librarian. Lenin died in 1924. So in 1925... Uh, you know, Stalin asks her to sort his personal uh, collection out, and he, and she does. And what she does is, um, she devises a, an ex libris stamp, to, you know, to, to so that his books could be stamped as belonging to him. She numbers the books that he, he already has. She buys him some new um, uh, bookcases, and and she also uh, prompts Stalin to actually devise a classification scheme. You know, how does he want his library to be organised? What categories does he want? And, and he does. And Stein responds to that request for, uh, by devising his own classification scheme. So what happens in the mid-1920s with Shushu's involvement in Stalin's uh, you know, book collection project is that you know, she's instrumental in transforming you know, a disparate collection of books into an identifiable um, personal library. Now, the initial location of this personal library is Stalin's uh, Kremlin apartment and, and, and his office. But in the mid-1930s, it, it gains a new central location. And that central location is a new, is a, um, a, da a dacha, <laughs> a new dacha that's constructed for him um, at Kunseba, which is on the, just on the outskirts of uh, Moscow. And, and so this is a big, like, dacha, a big country mansion, basically, in its own grounds. And it has a, a part of it. It has a library room, a huge kind of library room. And there's also another um, building next door to it, 
uh, which is also used to to store his books. So so that's that becomes the location of Stalin's personal library, and the dacha is the place he spends a, a lot of time at uh, uh, post its uh, construction. And, and indeed, in March 1953, when he dies of a stroke, it's, he dies at the dacha, and he dies uh, in his. He has a stroke in his library room. He dies in his library room. How how poetic uh, is that? The plan is when Stalin dies is that is to turn this dacha into a Stalin museum. And had that happened, uh, his book collection, which I estimate to be about twenty five thousand books, would have been kept intact um, and presumably open to viewing. But Khrushchev denounces uh, Stalin at a 2020 party congress. Plans change. Decisions are taken to, to disperse his personal effects, including his uh, book collection. So that's what happens to Stalin's personal library. Most of it is dispersed, but about five and a half thousand items are retained by the party archive, and they're retained because they they are uh, they are identifiably. Um, belong to Stalin. They, in particular, they have this his ex-Libris stamp, um, and it's about 5,500 books, of which about 500 are actually have uh, have his permit, are, are, are marked uh, by Stalin in one way or another. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the beginning of your comment uh, when you mentioned Bolshevik leaders and um, you talked about their conviction that reading can transform human nature and I uh, I wonder if you could go back uh, if you I wonder if you could um, go more into detail on that like what the process was supposed to be like and perhaps what philosophy underpinned these ideas well it, 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 it of course it's not just 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 reading alone um it's also action, yes, <laughs> and interreaction, yeah. It's a kind of material reality thing as well. You know, it's not just you know. So, so it's a it's it's a it's a practice thing, yeah. So, so you know, people will be um, transformed by a combination of reading and thinking, yes, and the actual practice of constructing, um, uh, constructing socialism. Actually, you know, Stalin. We can connect this to something that Stalin said later on in the 1930s. You know, this famous thing, uh, Stalin's statement about the, the, the role of writers in a socialist society. You know, he said that they're engineers of the human soul. Well, when, 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 when he's making that statement, which is made in a confidential setting to, to a group of, group of writers, you know, communists and non-communists, you know, he, say, he says that people will be, you know, transformed by social practice. In transforming their world, they will transform themselves, Yeah, which is a kind of classic Marxist trope, uh, by, by the way. But he said that writers can assist this process by building the, the human spirit, yes, by being engineers of the, of the human soul, by producing what he called socialist realist works, works which reflect the existing reality also show the the imminence of socialism. I, I wonder about this for, with a lot of these Bolsheviks, you know, Lenin and Trotsky, Stalin and others. When did they just find the time <laughs> to do all? I mean, there's the writing, but there's the reading. Like, how, when did Stalin find the time to read, given all of the things he like, you know, all of the material that's going across his desk, the fact that he 
is also reading, you know, literature and political history and a bunch of Marxist theory. What, when did he find the time? We have to remember that all these Bolshevik leaders, Lenin as well as Stalin, read surrounded by books, yeah? So books were always to hand, whatever they had, whatever they were working on, whatever documents they were processing. So, so that, that that's an important point to know. Yeah, I mean, th- there are claims, and that th- th- these claims supposedly come from Stalin um, himself. That Stalin, you know, read you know five hundred pages a day of, of this kind of like. That kind of reading, a yeah, book reading. There's another claim that, he, that Stalin said that he um, uh, he read 300 uh, uh, pages a day of that of you know of non, non you know, of, his, of his own kind of like a reading. Now I, I I agree with what you the point you're making there. I think that's exaggerated. I don't think um, he he read that. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think he, he was like Lenin as well, far too busy. Um, Processing the, the the enormous weight of uh, paperwork that's flowing through his office and across his desk. But on the other hand, Stalin was a very uh, quick reader. He was able to process huge amounts of information in an effective way. And also, there's no doubt that he did actually do read a lot. He read he read a lot of what I call extra curricular reading. I you know. You know Books, you know, all kinds of stuff. No doubt whatsoever, whatsoever that, that that's the case. And the evidence for that is not just, you know, the, uh, the character of his library and th- those texts which he marked, but all kinds of other statements in all kinds of different contexts which reveal how how well read he was. Yeah, there's no doubt whatsoever that, that Stalin is very, very, very well read. This is Rosanna, and I'm here to tell you why you guys should give us money. (laughs) The SRB podcast gives its listeners an amazing opportunity to learn more about Russian politics, history and culture. And, you know, as we were talking in the introduction, perhaps it can be a window to a more nuanced uh, understanding of certain things that you are not going to be able to get in um, regular media. So please support us so that we can keep up the good work. So if you want to become a Patreon, go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. He made these marginal notes, as as you said, uh, in in the you know in the back back covers of books, inside covers of books, on the margins of books. He underlined things a whole gambit, you know, with his colored pencils that he was famous for. And amongst all of these marginalia, I was really struck by the dialogue he's having with Trotsky. Can you talk about this interchange that he's having with Trotsky's work? Because I I don't know why, but I found that a bit unexpected. I found it unexpected as well. That was one of um, the surprises for me. It wasn't my discovery, I have to say. I have to be clear about that. Um, there was a, a Soviet historian who, who was one of the first people to to to, to look at this stuff, uh, and he wrote an article which which he used as, used Trotsky's writings. There's a huge chapter on Stalin's Pametki, uh, Stalin's marked in his books. My original idea was just to do a book which would be um, just about the Pometki. 
I couldn't do that, write that book. It, it didn't seem to me to be feasible or to use the material uh, if, if effectively. But nevertheless, there is this huge chapter. So there's a big chunk um, devoted uh, you know, to Stalin's markings, this book. And the book that I actually you know, pay most attention to, you know, as a case study, of Stalin's markings is this book by Trotsky, Terrorism and Communism, uh, which was Trotsky's reply to uh, Karl Kautsky's, who, who also wrote a book or a pamphlet uh, called Terrorism and Communism, and that was Kautsky's critique of the Bolsheviks, of the, the, the way the Bolsheviks had seized power, the way they were holding on to power, their use of repression, violence and terror, uh, and, and so on. So Trotsky wrote a pamphlet or a booklet with the same title, responding, counter-critique to the one that Kautsky had put forward. And Stalin read this this book by Trotsky, this Terrorism and Communism, very carefully and with evident uh, approval. And you can tell he read it carefully by, um, you know, the way he marked it in terms of underlining things and putting lines in the sideline at numbering points, and also by what what he wrote in in the margin of this book, mostly expressing approval of what of what Trotsky was writing in this book. One of the reasons I I used this particular text was okay because it's an interesting book and it also has a lot of Stalin's markings in it, which is not always tr- the case. But also because it's for me it, it functioned as a a narrative device, a narrative device which sets out the Bolshevik rationalization for their forcible seizure of power and their willingness to hold on to that power by repressive means. And what Trotsky argues in that pamphlet is basically a founding statement of rationalization for the Soviet state, for the Soviet state as, as really, okay, a state which was founded on a, a violent seizure of power by a minority and a minority which maintains it, itself in power through repression. Not, not just repression, there's all kinds of other things, of course, but repression is, is, is central uh, to the, the Bolsheviks uh, holding on to power. So all, the whole rationalisation uh, may be found in, in, in that pamphlet, and Stalin agrees with it. Yeah, so my argument is that you know, Stalin <laughs> learnt... I'm sure he had his own ideas, and of course, what 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 Trotsky was saying was very similar to what others were saying, particularly Lenin. Yeah, but sure, I mean, Stalin took that on as took that on his own. So, then that feeds into a broader argument. I have is that actually in the early post-revolutionary years, Stalin was quite well disposed to Trotsky, to Trotsky as an intellectual. Uh, and to what and to Trotsky's writings, I, I'm inclined to say that you know that after Lenin, Stalin learnt more from Trotsky than anyone else in this early post-revolutionary period until about the mid 1920s. And in fact, in in the mid 1920s, Stalin himself says at one point, he says, "Look, until now, I I I I'd had a moderate." Uh, uh, reaction and criticism of Trotsky's, you know. So he's, I'm, I wasn't really <laughs> an enemy. I didn't consider him to be an enemy or you know, a really severe opponent uh, of mine. That's not just a bit of rhetoric by Stalin. That's reflected in the way he read various uh, works by Trotsky in this period, not just terrorism, communism, but other other um, writings of Trotsky as well. Of course, that changes. Of course, by the late nineteen twenties. 
Stalin seized Trotsky as the, an enemy of the revolution. By the mid-1930s, he seized Trotsky as an, you know, an agent of Hitler and the Nazis and, and so on. And of course, it's Stalin's agents who assassinate Trotsky in, in Mexico in, in 1940. It's, it seems that working with the library brought a lot of fascinating, uh, perhaps sometimes uncomfortable discoveries for you. And I'm, I'm curious, what was the biggest surprise of Stalin's library for you? The biggest surprise was how similar Stalin was to me. <laughs> That's quite a statement. Oh <laughs> now you'll have to unpack that. In the sense that, you know, I was an idealist, a utopian, and, and so was he, yeah. I was, a, at one point in my life, I was a Marxist true, true believer, and so was he. I was a political activist for 20 years, and many of my kind of experiences of political act, completely different historical context and so on. But it's actually, you know, not that dissimilar from a lot of um, Stalin's experiences. But what really struck me when I looked at the library stuff was how Stalin marked books in the same way that I do. Yes? Do you, do you mark your books? Not everyone does. Some people see it as sacrilege, but I do. And my markings are the same as Stalin's. Also, by the way, the same as Lenin's. Lenin's markings are very similar to Stalin's, by the way. Stalin's markings are very similar to mine. Actually, very similar. Most people who mark their books will mark them the same way as, 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 as me and Stalin uh, did. The second surprise was, and, and I mentioned this point already earlier, is the feeling that Stalin invested in ideas, that emotional kind of uh, content. I, hadn't, I didn't expect to find that. And, and actually, this is one way in which I'm different <laughs> from Stalin. I, I, I would see myself as being, you know, a feeling and emotional intellectual and all that kind of thing. But I don't mark my books in that way. You won't find it many or, if any, emotive markings in, in, my, in my books. And then the points I made about, um, yeah, he was a serious Marxist. He was a serious... Uh, intellectual, the the, the pulls the centrality of ideas to his whole life and identity. Okay, but there's something more than that. And I suppose in a way, it's um, this is really the most surprising thing uh, of all is how his like personal reading, you know, his, his personal library reading, how important that was to shaping his political action including some kind of like momentous decisions and strategic shifts and orientations. And, and then the example I give of that uh, in the book is, you know, you, you know, this shift that takes place in, in, I don't know, Soviet discourse, Soviet culture, Soviet politics in the 1930s to the adoption of a much more patriotic identity. Soviet Union is, is a revolutionary state, but it also uh, reinvents itself as a, a patriotic state, as the, the successor to great Russia, as the defender of all the peoples of, of what was then the, 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 the Soviet Union. Yeah, just a, that kind of like patriotic, David Brandenburg, he calls it national Bolshevism. I'm not quite sure about that label. Eric Van Ray, he, he calls it revolutionary patriotism. I mean, Stalin called it Soviet patriotism. Yeah, so the adoption of Soviet patriotism has been central to what Soviet communism was all about. Well, I think that, that what motivated that shift primarily was Stalin's reading or his rereading of the lessons of Russian history. I think it came from his actually reading books, which through that reading, 
And through his reading of a particular historian, uh, Yuri Vipa, uh, he changed his view about various aspects of R Russian history. So that, you know, by the time we get to 1937, which is like the 20th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, he's saying, this is into a private gathering, you know, this is, this is quite a well-known thing, and I'm, I'm sure you'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. He's saying, you know, the Tsars did a lot of bad stuff. They were oppressors, they were exploiters, all that. But they also did one good thing. They created this great, powerful state. And that is our legacy. And we have to protect it because by protecting that state, we protect its people and we also protect the Soviet socialist project. Yeah? So I trace that shift, I mean, shift back to, 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 to Stalin's personal reading, to his personal library. I mean, I guess this, this kind of points to my next question, and you've already kind of hinted at this, is that... You know, you, you have this quote from, I, I believe it's Kaganovich from the 1970s, where he says, look, there are like six different Stalins. And, and I'm curious, you know, what different Stalins did you see by looking at his library and his reading over time and the type of things he read? Clearly, you know, this, this shift in the mid-30s to a more patriotic veneration of the Soviet state as the legacy of the Tsarist state is definitely a different at least it seems to me, a different a shift in, in a Stalin. Um, are there other Stalins you identified? Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't buy this many different Stalins at all. No, you remember that, that Kaganovich quote? I also point out that when Kaganovich is asked, um, well, can you tell us a bit more about these different Stalins? He, he, he doesn't answer really. He says, well, yeah, he was different, but he was the same. He was one. What, what I say in the book is that... Uh, that's, you know, viewed as an intellectual and viewed through the prism of his personal library, it, it, there's only one Stalin. It's the same Stalin, the young Stalin, the old Stalin is the same, recognisably the same person as an intellectual, as a, a reader. So I, I, I think there's only, uh, there's only one Stalin. There's Stalin, the intellectual, there's Stalin, the idealist, the utopian, there's Stalin who's driven by his ideology, uh, and, 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 his, and his politics. And that's a constant. Now, that's not to say that you know, Stalin doesn't develop as a human being and yes, new experiences, he learns stuff. He changes his ideas, he adapts. He certainly becomes you know, more cynical <laughs> as, as he gets more older. But then you know, that happens to most people. It certainly happened to me. And it'll probably happen to you too in, in due course as well. Um, so, so, yeah, so there is like change, adaption, development. But it's of a singular kind of figure. That, that's, that's, so that would be my view. There's, there's only one Stalin. Stalin, the intellectual, the ideologue, the political activists, and they're, they're, they constitute a unity. They are who Stalin is. You, me you mentioned it earlier um, that um, there's been tens, if not hundreds, of biographical works about Stalin. Um, and I wonder, why should we care about his library and reading habits? So mo most of the, the Stalin... Um, Literature, you know, is focused on Stalin as a, a political actor, yeah, and Stalin's relationship to to power. That's where the focus is. But as Sean made this point earlier in, in the conversation. He said, you know, um, you know, the drift in the Stalin literature in the last decade or so, at least, uh, has been towards viewing Stalin more uh, as a, more as as an intellectual 
uh, and more as an autodidact and has been more you know as engaged with ideas as he is with with the exercise of power so in a way my my kind of book is a um it's a continuation of that of that shift yeah and, and maybe well a fairly emphatic kind of assertion of you know let's of the idea we need to view stalin as an intellectual as a reader as a learner yeah and and the reason i do that is because if you don't understand that you don't cross that then you're not going to understand stalin as a as a dictator it's a point i made earlier it's you know stalin the intellectual is the foundation what makes it possible uh, for stalin to to be a dictator and to act in the ways in which he which he acts and and that's important to grasp that because if we don't understand that then you know we're we're disarming ourselves for the future yeah Obviously, you know, we, you know, you know what's the thing that well, who was it who said about history is that you know it can't tell you it can't tell you what's going to happen in the future, but it can make you wise forever. So you know we need to wise up to the fact that you know you can't explain Stalin and Stalinism just by reference to Stalin's personality or certain psychological uh, traits or certain character force. No, you only, you only understand, you can only, you understand Stalin and Stalinism by reference to the politics and ideology uh, that drives it and how that politics and ideology drove it in certain directions in the particular historical uh, context in, in which it unfolds. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. And I wanted to follow up with another question. I'm not sure if it like brings us, uh, <laughs> if it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's connected to the previous one, but I've been I've been thinking throughout this interview about your earlier comment when you talked about Stalin and this kind of like idea that you know his public appearance or whatever was available to researchers prior to the when the library archives became available, was kind of understood as this big performance, right? And by looking at his archives, at the marginalia, at the per- at the books that he had, we can kind of get a grasp on authentic um, Stalin. We can get a more intimate um, look, I guess. Um, and I wonder where where or like why this dichotomy between like performance and authenticity kind of emerge because it seems like it 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 is often applied not only to stalin but also to like this soviet you know the soviet subject as well because i mean like right if soviets knew about all the atrocities of the system how like how they could possibly you know authentically or genuinely believe in it they were either blind they were duped or they they must have been performing just like north koreans are performing for like western media as well i don't know i was just curious about like whether you had any thoughts on this dichotomy it's an interesting question actually i don't think there's actually a dichotomy or a duplicity at work here what the library does it it kind of like it authenticates the performance and the public face of Stalin and Stalinism as being what it is. You do find some interesting, intriguing things in the library. We've talked about some of those. Yeah, you know, what, what I really what I show is that you know, yeah, you know, 
what's on the surface of Soviet society, the Stalin era, Stalin and Stalinism, is what's under the surface as well. There's a continuity from the public to the deepest private of, of, of Stalin himself uh, personally. Now, of course, there's a lot of, you know, hypocrisy and cover-up and um, invasiveness, you know, because, okay, sure, uh, Stalin, you know, believes in the terror and the repressions and, and the violence he's visiting on the Soviet people, absolutely believes in it, uh, believes it's necessary, yes, and it's right, no doubt whatsoever. But that doesn't mean to say he's going to own up to it in public so explicitly and to give, give ammunition to, 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 you know, to his enemies. I wrote an article about this uh, a few years ago, which I said, uh, you know, you know, when you go into the archives, the first thing you realise about it, and this, this is not my phrase, some of, is that there's no secret in the archives. There's no secret because anyone who's, who's worked in the Russian archives will, will realise that straight away. What they're saying in private and the way they're saying it is what they're saying in in public. Yeah, it's it. There's there's you know it's you know the the, the private and public di discourses are not. That different, you know, not not difference in, in substantial terms, and the same is true in relation, uh, you know, you know, to to Stalin. You don't need to go into Stalin's like personal papers to find out that uh, you know he, he he was conducting a ruthless class struggle against the enemies of the state as he saw them, and in defence of social revolution, because he said that in public. That's all that in public. It's not you know, it's not a secret. What you said just reminded me of something Arch Getty told me years ago when he was working on the road to terror that, you know, one of the things that we all assumed is that once we get into the archival material, we'll find, you know, them snickering behind closed doors saying, ah, they believe all this bullshit we're spewing. But Arch said, you know, they pretty much are saying the same thing in private as they are saying in public to go to your point. Um, did Stalin have a favorite book? Sure answer is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> let me give you the long answer. Another long answer is his favourite author was was Lenin. Yeah, I don't know where he had. I don't know where he had a particularly favourite uh, Lenin book. Maybe he did. Uh, maybe he didn't. I think he, he was also quite fond of Plekhanov. Yeah, is it Plekhanov or Plekhanov? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, Plekhanov together with Lenin was the you know the founder of um, of Russian. Soviet Marxism, I suppose. Stalin was particularly fond of uh, Plekhanov's um, citation of that famous thing from Hegel about, you know, the, you know, the owl of Minerva only flies out of dust, that fam famous quotation. So I think he had a soft spot for him. I think history was his favourite subject. And Yuri Vipa, who wasn't a Marxist historian by any means, I think was his favourite historian. So I think I, maybe it's possible that Vipa's biography of, of, of Ivan the Terrible, of Ivan Grozny, was his favourite book. Certainly Stein's own views on uh, Ivan the Terrible were, were very similar to the views that are expressed by Vipa in, 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 that, in that biography. Now, the unfortunate thing is that Stein's you know, copy <laughs> of <laughs> Vipa's biography of Ivan, <laughs> Ivan the Terrible is, is, it has gone missing. It's not there. It's one of these books. Presumably it's displayed. But I'm sure that I, I'm, I'm certain that he, he, he read it and he took on board. Uh, uh, you can also talk about, you know, what were his favourite, like, literary kind of authors. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. But, you know, if I had to guess, I would say um, Gorky, Chekhov, Victor Hugo, Alexander Dumas. That would be his favourite authors. And also, you know, he also you know, expressed uh, you know, many times that um, 
Stalin was a great playwright, yeah. And also maybe Goethe as well. That's the other possibility. But actually, I think I find I was working through this in my head and on my notes preparing for the interview, and I finally came up with an answer to the question, actually. And I got to it, and I thought, actually, no, he did have a favourite book, right? Uh, Except it wasn't one of his library books as such. It was a book that... In effect, he wrote himself, or, or he almost wrote himself, or rather rewrote. And that's the, um, the short course history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. I think that was Stalin's favourite book, because that was his view of the history of the party and the way he wanted to present it. And it was, it, it was, it was the kind of book that he wanted to present to the party members, not the mass of party members, um, but the key people. Because what he, said, what he said about the book, he said, you know, you, you, did this, the prime function of this history of the party, okay, it's about the history of the party and all the different factions and all the, the enemies in the party and so on, but fundamentally its purpose is to educate party members in ideas, in theory, right? And that's the most important thing of all. If people have the right ideas, the right grasp of theory, then they are protected from being subverted by the ideas of the class of the of, of the class enemy. So I think you know because it's he sees that the sort of history is being you know a, a text of ideas uh, fundamentally. So and again, it underlines this whole point about the importance of, of ideas to Stalin uh, as an intellectual. And finally. Um- what do you think Stalin would say or write in the margins of your book? Well, Stalin had two two favorite annotations, yes, right? Two. Uh, uh, so the f- favorite was Note Bene, NB, written in Latin. Yeah, there's hundreds, hundreds, maybe even thousands of NBs in, written in his library book. So Note Bene, this is important information, important idea, important formulation, whatever it might be. So I'd like to think that Stalin would have written on the front of my book, (laughs) NB. Yeah, this is an important book. You have to read this book. Right, yeah. Okay, but I suspect that uh, he he would have actually written his second favourite annotation. His second favourite annotation was Ha ha, a derisive ha ha. I think he, I think he would have written ha ha. So this Robert's character thinks he can get inside my head by reading my library books. Ha, how funny is that? So that's my answer to that question. That was Jeffrey Roberts. Jeffrey Roberts is professor emeritus of history at the University College Cork. He is a renowned specialist in Russian and Soviet foreign and military policy and an expert on Stalin and the Second World War. He's the author of several books. His latest is Stalin's Library, A Dictator and His Books, published by Yale University Press. Okay, thank you very much, Rusana. When I first heard that this book was coming out, I was very excited because, you know, I knew Stalin was a big reader as well all these Bolsheviks were, as Jeffrey points out. And I was really, and I knew that he, Stalin also made marginal notes because I know he did this also in archival documents. So I was really curious to see what what he got, what Roberts, you know, uncovered with all of this. Um, what, What did you think? What are some of your takeaways? It was new to me to think about Stalin, not only as a politician, uh, as a dictator, but also as an intellectual and um, an avid scholar. You know, um, we, do, we we definitely don't grow up 
learning about all those things. I don't know what the education was in the Soviet Union and what people learned about Stalin back then, but when I was in school, I mean, it was very different. Yeah, it was mainly about politics and repressions and totalitarianism and the gulag. And so here we really get a glimpse of him as a thinker. And not only that, but we also get to see his the development of him and of his thought over time and how, you know, he transformed and grew. Um, it's just a very unusual angle to look at this, uh, you know, yeah, political figure. Let me ask you, you're a reader, you know, you've read a bunch of books, still have to as a graduate student, you know, same with me, right? Read all these books. Do you feel like if somebody, what, what do you think somebody could learn from your library? Do you think your library is representative of you in some form or fashion? Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess like you have to admit that it's limited. It's only one facet of someone's life or it's, um, you know, just like you open the door and you see something inside the room, but you don't see the entire room. But it's definitely representative, I think. Um, sometimes I even think when I when I write my field notes, you know, because I'm I'm in the field. Well, I was in the field. I'm like, oh, I need to like m make sure. <laughs> I need to make sure I write it this way because what if someone at some point in the future will read my field notes? Even like I don't know. Wow, you're already thinking of the archive. Of <laughs> the archive, you. yes. <laughs> how how ambitious. But you never know. Maybe my kids will read it and they'd be like, oh my God, what was she thinking? But yeah, and I wonder if like Stalin, when he was doing all those marginalia and like noting books and stuff, if he ever thought about the fact that this will be studied and read and looked at closely. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating be just as a as a because you know there have been so many biographies of Stalin. There's so many books about Stalin, all aspects of of you know Stalin. And but one of the problems that you know scholars have in trying to get inside the head of the man is that Stalin left no diary. Um, you know, we have a large correspondence that he had, but it's mostly official. We don't have a lot of insights. I mean, we have some from you know memoirs and some letters he wrote and trying to get at his personality. Um, and, and I think the, this, this interrogation of his library and looking at the way he read, what he read and how he even commented on, you know, some of these things, it does give us a, at least one piece that we didn't really have before in terms of trying to understand him as a personality um, I agree with you in terms of, you know, does your library represent you? I mean, if somebody looked at my library, you would probably, first off, they'd see a lot of books that haven't been read, but, but, Never but yeah, opened. you know, okay. uh, you know, always, always, <laughs> always acquired with the best intentions, of course, but, um, but nonetheless, the types of books, of course, are, um, are indicative of, you know, I think where one is at. Um, and, and my library, just to give an example, you could, you could see, you know, if you put what I was reading and collecting or buying 10, 15 years ago, 
um, compared to what I'm reading and buying now, you would see a different a shift in terms of my intellectual interests. I thought it was interesting how he compared his personal path with that of Stalin. And I, and, and I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And it's such a bold move. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What did you what did you think? Did you pay attention to that to that comment? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was at first I thought it was really funny. But um, uh, but you know, I think I think look, looking at the way you know, the stuff that stalled the way he read in terms of underlying commenting. I mean, it's, it's actually quite normative, you know? Um, I think anyone who, who has a tendency to write in their own, in books, I mean, you do it in a similar way, right? Um, I was, I was particularly interested in the fact that um, Stalin's engagement with Trotsky I thought that was actually very fascinating, uh, just because it is so unexpected. Um, um, I, I think that, I think if, if I, one of the things that I think is really crucial, because I think this is an insight into Stalin in the late 30s, is his, his turn to history and reading about Ivan Grozny. Um, because we've, we've known that, you know, he was influenced by this history, but to know that he, how engaged he was, or the fact that he was actually reading these books, uh, is is also revealing. If you if you put that in line with some of the changes that are going on in the Soviet Union in that late 1930s, and I th and this is another thing that um, I I like, but I'm also kind of skeptical, and that is by focusing on Stalin's reading and what he read and what he commented on. Um, you're, you're, well, yeah, you're inferring first, but second, I think it's, you, you're over prioritizing ideology. Now, granted, I think Stalin was a true believer. However, he was also a true believer within certain constraints and contexts. And I, some part of me, my, my kind of uneasiness comes from the fact that when you focus on what he was reading and then extrapolate, you know, say like Robert's position, you know, what he said about the terror. Um, I think that in some way you remove, and I don't think that this is Jeffrey's intentions, but I do think you run the risk of removing Stalin from this historical circumstances in which one exists in that are just as important in shaping how you make decisions, what you think, how you even take the stuff you're reading and applying them is within those constraints and conditions. And my fear is that we can might lose some of that. Yeah, I think that's a valid critique for sure. Um, and I think it's, it, it's similar to say some of ethnographic works that focus uh, predominantly on discourse, on ideology, on what people read and thought as opposed to say like not as opposed to but um and maybe material conditions and socioeconomic context is like sidelined is like moved to the background and so then you, you you start like questioning well okay they were motivated by all these ideas and uh they had these beliefs etc 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 but also like 
other stuff mattered too, not just ideology, like you were saying. Thank you for your thoughts, Rusana. I'm, I'm always, I love talk. I mean, I actually really enjoy kind of, you know, l- taking a bit of time to process what, what we take from, from these interviews and reading the book. So uh, I really enjoy this, this part of the, the show. Um, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. Um, as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like this podcast, please take a moment to help us out and share it on social media. Let your friends and family know, recommend us. Um, and if you'd like, please drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or through srbpodcast.org. Uh, let us know what you think. And, um, We've made this pitch already in a couple of episodes. I'm going to make it again, but we've had no takers. But I want to encourage listeners to send in any audio testimonies or questions that we could play on the podcast. Uh, You know, it's very easy to record something short. Just pick up your smartphone, record something, and email it to info at srbpodcast.org. We'd love, I mean, this is a great way to, to hear what listeners think and what they appreciate about the show. And as always... We love your support. We can't say this enough. So, you know, just keep in mind that this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and therefore we rely on your generous support as well as support of other institutions to keep this podcast completely free and accessible for anyone who wants it without any advertisements or paywalls or any of these restraints on knowledge. We want to keep it free flowing. So help us keep it that way and uh, become a member of the table of ranks by going to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog and give us a monthly contribution. Uh, Until next week. Bye.